Welcome to Spectra, the show that discusses news and topics that affect Southern Nevada and the surrounding communities. Now your host, Jim Tofty. Welcome to the program. I am welcoming two guests today. Later, Las Vegas Review-Journal business columnist Rick Vallada, who will discuss the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the local economy. But my first guest is the producer of the critically acclaimed documentary titled The American Nurse, which explores some of the biggest issues facing America, aging, war, poverty, and prisons through the work and lives of of nurses. Lisa, welcome to the program. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I just watched your documentary a few days ago, The American Nurse, and it was incredibly emotional and touching and such a great tribute to that difficult profession. Mm, thank you so much. We we were really lucky to get to talk to nurses for the last basically decade. I, I work um, as a team with a director and filmmaker named Carolyn Jones, and we've been traveling all across the country talking to nurses for a really long time now. And we've felt that no one's really listening to nurses and they should be. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's kind of, you know, it's this funny moment now that for the first time in this last decade, we feel like there's a little bit of a spotlight finally on the profession. So it's great to see that. Yeah, it is really resonating now, isn't it, with this pandemic happening? Right. I mean, it's bittersweet in that sense because we've been singing this tune for a long time of sort of rallying around nursing and that profession um, because we really feel like nurses have so much to offer everything we're dealing with in this country. You know, if you're dealing with an aging loved one, if you're um, about to have a baby, whatever is going on in your stage of life, a nurse uh, very often is a part of that. Um, and has so much to contribute to that process and to, to help guide us through all of those things we're going through. So it's just nurses are there for us no matter what. And we see that now more than ever, how critical they are um, to our health and healthcare in this country. I didn't realize until researching this project that Carolyn Jones, your director, had breast cancer and, and was so moved and impressed by the nursing care she received that she wanted to pay tribute to the profession and ended up uh, getting involved with the book and, and this film. Yeah, it's been quite a journey. I have to say that when um, we were actually approached by a healthcare company called Fresenius Kabi back in 2011 with the idea of doing something, they wanted to do something to honor the profession of nurses because nurses are really the end users of all of their life-saving uh, medicines and technologies. So that's that was the origin of the idea of uh, doing a really big project. But because of Carolyn's own experience as a breast cancer survivor, it really sort of triggered something for her to say, you know what, that nurse was really the person that got me through that whole process. And I never had a chance to go back and thank her. And um, Carolyn and I work really closely together. We're really close friends. And so it was a funny moment because I said, we have to call Joanne. That was Carolyn's oncology nurse. I said, we have to go find Joanne and she has to be the first nurse that you interview for the project. And Carolyn paused for a moment. Like she wasn't sure that she was ready to face Joanne and revisit all of that and all of those memories. But it was definitely the right thing to do. And it just launched the project in a really beautiful way because they had such a wonderful connection. And Joanne 
you know, was just was just a beautiful person and, and really funny and warm. Um, and it's true, you know, that's who got Carolyn through that process. It wasn't so much the team of doctors and surgeons and all of that. It was really this nurse that she was with every week. Isn't that something? My father-in-law had quintuple bypass surgery a few months ago, and it is true. We spent a lot of time in the hospital, and you can see how much more of an intimate relationship these nurses have with the patients. Not that the doctors aren't great, like you say, but I mean, it's it's a whole different ballgame, isn't it? Absolutely. It's just a different relationship. I mean, what we came to find is that the nurses are looking at patients so holistically because they get to know the family members. They spend so much time with that patient and that family, and they think about other things. They're not just looking at, you know, I'm here to fix your elbow or your knee. (laughs) You know, does this patient have transportation? What's their situation at home? Are they going to be able to rehabilitate properly? I mean, there's so many things that go into their thinking and how they can help guide that patient you know, once they're ready to go home from the hospital, whatever the case may be. Um, So we just found that nurses approach our health and our well-being in this holistic way that I've never seen another profession that does it quite like that, that also has the, the expertise of understanding some of the medical piece, but also, you know, this really... Um, emotional intelligence uh, that they just, they get us. They That's why they're the most trusted profession, right? Because they really understand how people tick. Lisa Frank joins me, the producer of the American Nurse Project. And so this film follows the paths of five different nurses. And boy, are they ever different. Where they came from, and really, it's incredible to me what is in their DNA to drive them to become such, you know, selfless people, I guess. Right. That was one of the questions we set out with was, what does it take to become a nurse? Because, you know, the project actually started before the film. We did a book. So Carolyn Jones, the director and photographer behind that project, she's been my partner for, for many, many years now. Um, we went across the country and met a hundred nurses in every different kind of nursing specialty. And we wanted to be surprised and, and we were beyond surprised at every turn. We didn't have any idea, you know, the, the education that people have as nurses, the, the, the way you can specialize. We think of doctors as specializing, but nurses specialize too. And they really are experts in very different, um, fields and aspects of nursing. So, we, we had this great pool to pull from of all of these nurses all across the country. So we selected five and we did strategically want to choose five that we thought would be visually really interesting, different parts of the country and different, um, different kinds of nursing. So yeah, as you said, we have, we have a nun running a nursing home in, in Wisconsin, right. <laughs> animal therapy. You know, we have a yeah. labor and delivery nurse at Johns Hopkins, you know, top hospital in the country. Uh, we have a nurse doing home health, Jason Short in the Appalachian Mountains, who's literally he drove us in his RAV4 up a creek. I mean, it was, he does <laughs> to go see his patients. We actually got stuck in the creek and our cameraman, Jakob Insek, is a very sporty guy. So he and Jason get out of the car and had to like peel off the bumper of the car to get us unstuck. I mean, it was crazier <laughs> production experiences I've ever had. I wondered about that because it, it really did. It was like you were driving right through this flood. And it, it's interesting now that you tell me that there were actually <laughs> a couple of uh, roadblocks along the way. By the way, I'm from Wisconsin and I'm familiar with that area oh, that, that right? you know, sis- Sister Stephen runs that nursing home filled with goats and sheep and chickens. And one of the more unbelievable scenes really is where she brings the entire nursing staff together to sing for a 
dying resident. It, I have to admit, I mean, it's it's uh, there is a tear in my eye, and and it was very touching scene, really. That was so unbelievable for us to to witness that. And the thing is that they do that for every patient. That wasn't something that they did just for our cameras. <laughs> you know, that is really truly what they do when a patient is close to the end of life. And with that particular patient that, you know, they had, they had just sung to her the week before, um, you know, it's one of the things that they do to comfort their residents. And it really is beautiful. I mean, talk about a community. They're bringing together the local um, children who are in foster care can come there for weekends as a respite for those families. Then they are, you know, livening the whole scene. We've got the animals, we've got the kids, we've got the, the older folks living there. I mean, it's just a beautiful setup. I wish, I wish there were more facilities around the country that could somehow replicate that model. It, it must be really hard to do. Yeah, some of those little goats were pretty cute. I'm surprised you guys didn't take one or two of those home with you. We actually got to witness <laughs> and film the birth of a baby goat, and it was named after Yaka because it was a boy. So Yaka, our cameraman, has, there's baby Yaka. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like Yaka probably has a great reel of outtakes from this project. Yeah, he certainly does. He certainly does. <laughs> we were in um, Angola, which is the biggest maximum security prison in the country in Louisiana, um, where we met Tanya Faust, who's a nurse running a hospice program where inmates are caring for their fellow inmates at the end of life, which was really an incredible thing to witness there too. Um, and Brian McMillian, who was a military nurse, and we actually traveled with him to Germany to understand a bit more about how his work was impacting soldiers when they were coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. Brian McMillian, the Army veteran and former medic, rehabilitating wounded soldiers returning from war, and pretty neat how they could respond and re and relate to him because he had Absolutely. been through much the same. It was it was neat. It was really incredible to watch. You know, when you that, but this is something that we saw with the nurses everywhere, right? That so often they were dealing with patient populations that were from their communities, um, even if they weren't. They just had this way of relating to people and having this sort of cultural understanding, understanding people's different backgrounds and meeting them where they where they were, you know, um, it was just beautiful. And, and Brian, that was absolutely the case. The veterans kept saying that he gets me because he's been through this. He understands what it's like. And other nurses or healthcare professionals might not be able to relate to these guys in the same way. As you mentioned, uh, Nurse Tanya Faust, who, you know, this Angola prison, it's notorious. I mean, I think a lot of people know about that prison. Not just Tanya and the great work that she does, but this this incredible uh, inmate, uh, Lafayette, I believe his name is, where inmates serving life sentences help and care for their fellow inmates who are dying. Beautiful thing to witness and really unusual to get to really go there and, and witness that. I mean, Lafayette, he wasn't even on duty. <laughs> he just chose to go over to the medical ward and see if anyone needed help. And he ran into his buddy who said, I haven't taken a shower in a week. And Lafayette said, here, I'll help you with that. And he just went ahead and, you know, this is a paralyzed um, inmate who's on this medical ward and he needed something and Lafayette was there to, to help him with it. I mean, it's just this selflessness. It, it was amazing to see how that happened that act of caring um, has really transformed this inmate's life. So Lafayette now has this incredible sense of purpose. He knows that every day he can help his fellow inmates feel better, have a little bit better day. And then when they're really at the end of life, these guys sit vigil with these patients 24 hours a day. I mean, 
you and I might not have 24-hour vigil at the end of our lives. Who knows, right? I mean, it it was incredible to imagine that these guys are not going to die alone. Here they are, and they have this incredible support system. So it it really was was quite beautiful. Yeah, And I think, you know, most people's idea of a nurse is uh, he or she is at the hospital, but this Jason Short that you mentioned, driving these rugged uh, backwoods, rural roads in Appalachia and and risking life and limb really just to get to the patient, who in, in many cases are people who are also terminal. Exactly. He he was a sporty guy, I have to say. Um, and they were lucky to have him, I, you know, even within their healthcare group of, of home health nurses. Um, not everybody was willing or able to, to drive literally up a creek that had been flooded from the, the mining, top of the mountain mining practices there. Um, but Jason had been a mechanic, an auto mechanic and a truck driver. Part of his DNA and part of his experience that led him, you know, so he had no fear whatsoever driving to these patients' home. Um, and, and what we saw, I mean, one of the homes that we visited was heated by a, a coal-powered uh, stove, you know, an old-fashioned stove in their home where they were, they were, that was how they were heating the home. I had never seen anything like it. Um, you know, and, and then this woman had a terminal cancer. She was living with her mother. Without Jason driving up that creek to bring medical supplies and check on this patient, that's the only medical care that she was ever going to get. So it really is this lifeline for patients in, in that in that part of our country. What kind of effect did it have on you as the filmmakers? Because you're not medical professionals. You were saying th- this had to be an eye-opening experience for you. It had a profound effect. I'm not even sure I can fully articulate all of the effect it's had. It probably completely changed changed me in ways I, I wouldn't even know. Carolyn likes to joke about the fact that everybody calls her up now, her family members, with medical questions because they think, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've been talking to nurses for so long now, surely we've, you know, something has rubbed off on us. Um, but no, it's true. In, in the course of this last decade that we've been working on nurse-centric projects, you know, I've had my own children. Um, I have to say that the experience of having witnessed, you know, a, a delivery of, of a child in our film um, impacted how I was advocating for myself as a patient in that situation. You know, so all of these things filter in. So we certainly, um, you know, but 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 beyond that, I think just the humanity of it all, getting to witness people caring for others is one of the most beautiful examples of, of, of humanity that we could ever imagine. And, um, and we don't get to see that in our day-to-day. Those of us that work in an office or work, you know, um, this isn't something that we necessarily see with our own two eyes. And, and that's why we feel privileged to be able to create these films and hopefully shed a little light on it for folks that might not otherwise um, have exposure to these types of stories. Those were some pretty intense moments where that nurse you referenced, Naomi Cross, a labor and delivery nurse at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. She coached an ovarian cancer survivor in the cesarean delivery of her son, and her face was just right up in the face of the woman who was giving birth. It was really something. Yeah, that shot, um, while the patient was getting an epidural and it was it was a tough moment for her and and it was it was scary for her she had she had um her cancer detected with her first child and was very lucky that she had had a c-section so that they could detect the cancer so this time what we were filming was the delivery of the baby and as soon as the baby came out they brought in the oncology team to go in and check if the cancer had returned so it 
it wasn't just a matter of here's a patient going in to deliver a healthy baby, which thank God everything, of course, was perfect. Um, It was then this fear of um, what if my cancers come back? Luckily, everything turned out wonderfully. We just had an update from Becky, that's the patient um, in the film, and and she sent us a photo of Felix, who's now seven years old, and this very happy, adorable Uh. young guy. Um, And she showed him the footage of his birth, so that was a funny full circle. She said he thought that that was just hilarious to see himself. I was going to ask if you had been in touch with with any of the others, especially now, uh, being the frontline workers. Do you have any other stories where you've talked to some of the other nurses? Yeah, we've actually been, Carolyn's been following up pretty much with everybody to try to get updates on what's going on. And and it really runs the gamut and it's really complicated. I know with Jason, one of the things that's been happening in parts of the country is that in areas where the pandemic hasn't really reached their hospitals, people are actually losing their jobs because there's actually not enough work for, for nurses um, right now because people aren't showing up to the emergency departments and people aren't having elective surgery. And so I right. think, um, you know, believe it or not, Jason's in that situation. He's now a nurse practitioner, um, but he's facing losing his job in the emergency department because they don't have enough hours to offer. So that's one of the hardest things that we're hearing. It all feels so lopsided where we've got this dramatic need um, and yet you hear of other places where the hospitals and, and the staff are so hard hit because they've lost so much revenue from their normal procedures. So that's so that's a tough one. Tanya Faust, speaking of Angola, she is working the night shift in what they call the COVID camp at Angola, part of wow. the prison, where they've put all of these patients who are infected with the coronavirus. Um, so she's very busy. It's been hard to get her on the phone. Uh, but 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 she is committed and, um, you know, working just as hard as ever. The film, I believe, is available for free through May, if I'm not mistaken. How do how do people uh, find yeah. it? Well, we're lucky that we have this great partnership with Kino Lorber. That's our distributor um, with support from Fresenius Kabi, which was the, the partner that supported our book and film in the first place. And uh, people can find it on Kino Now dot com backslash American nurse. Um, but probably the easier way to go is also just just search for the American nurse project. And that's our that's our website with all information about the film, the book. And there's a link right there on the homepage that'll take you to the free streaming opportunity. The American nurse producer Lisa Frank has joined me. It's directed by an executive produced by Carolyn Jones. I can't recommend it enough. I really enjoyed it. And I think it's important for many people to see this right now. Thank you so much, Lisa, and good luck with everything. Thank you, Jim. It was great to talk to you. All right. Very good. And you stay healthy. Thank you. Thank you. My next guest is Review Journal columnist Rick Vallada, who this morning offers some insight into the Las Vegas economy during this pandemic. Rick, how are you holding up? It's been some, probably the longest couple of months that I've ever experienced in my life. You know, I, I feel fortunate that I am able to, to work from home and continue to do my job because uh, I know that there's so many, especially in Las Vegas, that... They, they don't have that luxury, and I feel so badly for them. Life as we know it, it really hit the brakes. And so how did that change the angles that you guys as as reporters and columnists uh, have have taken since this happened? Well, b- believe 
it or not, things have actually gotten busier since the, the, the COVID-19 protocol emerged. And, um, and I think a lot of that is because there are so many people who are hungering for information, any kind of information about what this is going to look like, how it's going to uh, affect people, and uh, when we can expect it to be over, which unfortunately isn't going to be for a while. As you have written about the past few weeks, one of the glaring holes right now in this town is the total loss of convention business. As you wrote, one in particular, the National Association of Broadcasters decided to cancel their convention, and that means a ton of jobs as well as uh, all the hotel rooms that would have been taken up. Yeah, I think a lot of people just have the impression that when there's a convention, you know, it's a large convention, that we're just talking about, um, you know, the hotels and the convention center being at the center of all the, of all of this. But there are so many jobs connected with the convention industry and th- things that a lot of people don't even think about. Uh, transportation to and from the airport, transportation to and from the hotels. Uh, the people who put the booths up, the, the electricians and plumbers and construction workers that are that are there that design these elaborate booths. And anybody who's gone to a big convention knows what I'm talking about. Some of these booths are like two stories tall, and they, they, they require a little bit of thought. And they're beautifully designed and beautifully done, um, and there's hundreds of them. So it's not just a, a one or two people who are working that uh, that would put some of these things together. It's a whole team of these types of things. Everybody's going to have a, a contractor. Everybody's going to have a, an electrician. Everybody's going to have, uh, you know, somebody who, who guarantees that the Wi-Fi is in place. It, it's just a, a number of different things, and it all seems to come together when these conventions go. And while they only last like three or four days, it just takes weeks and weeks to, to, to you know, to plan them and, and build them and then another week after that to tear it all down and wait for the next one. What kind of money do we know is Las Vegas going to lose with just convention and meetings business uh, having gone away now? It's hard to calculate, but it's obviously in the uh, um, millions of dollars. Economic impact of some of these things is uh, is almost always in the uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and it, a lot of times it, it kind of depends on what the, the size of these uh, venues are and what the size of these uh, shows are. But we're, we're experiencing a lot of them at this point in time. And some of the big ones included the uh, uh, you know NAB, as you pointed out. Uh, there's a, a huge real estate, uh, commercial real estate show that uh, happens in, in May that that's, that's going to go away. And uh, the way people are talking right now, uh, the convention business might not come back for, for a while. There's several several shows that have actually rescheduled. But in order to have shows like this, you have to people get on planes to come here. And that seems to have slowed to a crawl as well. I, I just listened in on a, uh, an earnings call for Southwest Airlines, probably one of the most successful airlines that serves our market. And uh, it was a pretty sad experience when you see them <laughs> with their revenue down 17.8%. This is a, a company that has a, a reputation for profiting every quarter, quarter after quarter for years. And they had, they showed a loss this time. And that, you know, that, that just kind of shows what this is, what kind of an impact this is having, not just on conventions, 
but on all the delivery services to the conventions as well. Several conventions, as you mentioned, they've been rescheduled for June, July, August, and into the fall, but is that even optimistic? I think that uh, some of the, the, the uh, uh, companies that, that have convention centers, like MGM, uh, like uh, Las Vegas Sands Corporation, I think they are optimistic and, and they are, have been happy to see some of these, these uh, groups reschedule. Um, but as I said, uh, you have to have people show up at these things in order for them to be successful. And until we see a committed effort to, uh, to actually come here, then uh, I, I would think that the, uh, the return of the, of the convention as we know it is going to be slowed considerably. So I guess my, my answer to your question would be that, no, I'm not particularly optimistic that things are going to be uh, all re- ready to go in the way they were come all. You know, it might take uh, longer than that. It might take into next year or even the year beyond that. You know, and obviously the canceled NFL draft party here, which was going to be huge, at least we got the news from Roger Goodell that we'll get it again in a couple years. Right. And uh, that was uh, something that I, I think everybody saw when they had this um, this one year that there was, uh, you know, that there was not a city committed to the 2022 draft. I think everybody in Las Vegas were looking at that and saying, uh, that's where we need to be. <laughs> and that's uh, what it turned out to be. Uh, you know, as, uh, as you mentioned, Roger Goodell on the, on the first night of the draft last week basically said that, uh, you know, we're going to pause here in the middle of picking players to, to be on these different teams just long enough to tell you that uh, the 2022 draft is going to be in Las Vegas. So now we have a a head start on planning, and certainly things are going to change a lot between now and then. So it might not be the same kind of of party that we were envisioning for 2020, but I would have to to guess that there's going to be a lot of elements that are going to be in place that are going to be just as uh, impressive as what we had planned in 2020. Rick Falata joins me from the Review Journal. I would imagine Raiders owner Mark Davis is just freaking out right now because who knows what is going to be happening when the season begins. Yeah, uh, you know, there's been so much speculation about some of these uh, games being played in empty arenas, and and that was certainly the case in Europe for, for quite a while. Uh, back in in February, so will that scenario play out here? Uh, I I don't know. It, it it hasn't been determined yet. You got to figure that they're thinking about that though. And what a shame that we have this absolutely fantastic uh, yeah. building that's been built specifically for the Raiders, and that uh, it might be that the first season uh, gets. Uh, um, damaged a lot by the fact that they're not going to be able to allow everybody in that wants to be in there, especially if some of these social distancing protocols are still in place. And that finishes up the first part of my discussion with RJ columnist Rick Vallada and my first guest, Lisa Frank, who produced the wonderful American Nurse Project documentary. And thank you for tuning in this morning. I do hope to see you back here next Sunday at 7.30. Spectrum is hosted, written, and produced by Jim Tofty. If you have suggestions on future guests or topics, please send them to spectrum at smiradio.com.